best of times, it was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom, it was the age of foolishness. It was the epic of belief, it was the epic of incredulity. It was the season of light, it was the season of darkness, it was the spring of hope, it was the winter of despair. Most of you would recognize that's the opening line to Dickens' classic novel, A Tale of Two Cities, or as I like to describe it, a description of the Christian ministry. There's no question but that the calling to ministry is one of the highest callings that God has placed upon man. The qualifications are enumerated in the scriptures and are high enough to make the most confident of Christians to bow in utter humility when he is called to be a pastor. The rewards of ministry are exceedingly great. As ministers of the gospel, we get to see much of the behind-the-scenes working of God that people in our congregations don't usually get a chance to see. We have the privilege of preaching to many people at one time and seeing the fruit of that labor as God's elect are regenerated. We have the blessing of bringing those to obedience in waters of baptism. One of my personal favorite parts of the ministry is counseling young couples as they prepare for marriage. What blessings, what privileges uh, we are able to partake in as, as ministers of the gospel. Yet, with that being said, almost side by side, and sometimes even more so, we see the worst of times. Some people that you invest most of your time and energy and your heart into, they turn on you. And they will say all manner of evil against you. Some of it actually false. You may come out of a blessed wedding ceremony and be immediately faced with a bitter dispute heading for divorce. You may come out of the waters of baptism and get thrown into the sewers of contention. If you are in the Christian ministry, I think you can certainly sympathize with Dickens and say it is the best of times. It is the worst of times. A few years ago, I came to one of these general assemblies, and I was in the pit of despair. And I can tell you that the ministry of the men who preached and also the men who ministered to me was of great help. That sweet and wonderful fellowship that you get from the brothers in this association. I went back to my congregation renewed, rejuvenated, and better equipped to face the spiritual battles that lay ahead. I've been asked to give the opening devotional at our General Assembly, and I have two basic goals. First, I am sure that there are some here today who have undergone a tough year, some who are discouraged, perhaps some who may even be ready to quit. Second, if you're going through the good times, I want to remind you that tough times may just be around the corner. A well-known Southern Baptist preacher once said, good and evil run on parallel tracks and usually arrive at just about the same time. <laughs> be on the alert. Don't let your guard down for a, a second, for Satan is like that roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. What is it that happens to us when 
we suffer what the psychologists would call burnout. Specifically, what happens to Reformed Baptist pastors? Because in, in my experience, and, and I've been around a little while now, I, I can remember when I was the young one here. I can. <laughs> Not well, but I can. And I haven't heard of any Reformed Baptist pastors that have really just lost faith. Nor do we typically lose faith in our doctrine because we know we have the truth. We know we have the best doctrine. What we have a tendency to lose is not that Christ will build his church, but can I really be a part of that? Am I being effective in that? Oh, I know other people are doing it, but was I really called to the gospel ministry? What we lose is our passion. And that's what I want to talk about this morning in the few moments that we have. Talk about passion. I'm not talking about emotion. Uh, Anybody can whip up and conjure up emotions with the right music, with the right set of circumstances. What I am really talking about is passion. So I want to visit an old friend, Nehemiah. I love Nehemiah. In the first chapter, and I'm only going to read the first four verses, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of, of Chislev, in the 20th year while I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers and some men from Judah came, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and had survived captivity and about Jerusalem. They said to me, the remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach. And the wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. And then listen. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Notice what happens to Nehemiah when he hears of the condition of Jerusalem and the people who were remaining. His first response was to sit down and weep. Now, if you, if you know the book of Nehemiah, you understand that Nehemiah was a man of action. He was a man of intelligence. He was a man of position. He had respect. He had authority. But he was also, first and foremost, a man of passion for the things that counted to the kingdom of God. And when he sees this condition and when he hears about it, he sits down and he weeps from his heart. I want to ask you even right now, when was the last time that you sat down and wept over the condition of the church of Jesus Christ? I'm not talking about having a merely emotional response. There are many things that can conjure up our emotions. I'm talking about from the inside, having a heart, looking at the kingdom of God and and just weeping over the condition of the church of Jesus Christ. The same passion that we see in Nehemiah. It's the same passion that we see in Jesus Christ. John 11:35, shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. I don't know if any of us really understand the import of the tiniest verse. Oh, I've read all the commentaries and I've heard all the various explanations for why Jesus wept and he was moved by the emotions of Mary and Martha and and this one and that one and 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 there's probably an element of truth in all of that. But my purpose is not to look at any of those reasons. What I'm concerned about is that Jesus, the God-man, 
the second person of the Trinity, eternal God, the incarnate word, the chief shepherd, the Jesus who went to the cross and suffered and died for his people, this same Jesus who rose again on that Sunday morning 2,000 years ago, stood at the tomb of Lazarus, and he wept. As he looked at that tomb, full well knowing that in just a few moments he was going to tell Lazarus to come forth, knowing that the grief of Mary and Martha and all the mourners present was going to be turned into joy, he stood and he saw the effects of sin upon his people. The tomb, he looked at that tomb with that stone in front of it, and he saw the symbol of death, his enemy, the last enemy that he's going to conquer. And he took it all in, and he wept. Jesus is the sympathetic Savior that knows our every thought. He understands our weaknesses. He understands our pain and our suffering. Because he was made like us in every way except for sin. <laughs> That's what boggles my mind. And though he knew what he was going to do, and though he knew that in the very end, all would be perfect for his children, yet he wept. Jesus was a man of passion. And in his humanity, that passion came through, and he wept. You know, we see that same passion in a slightly different way in Gethsemane. As in his fervent prayers to his heavenly father, preparing for the, the reason that he came to earth, and he began sweating drops of blood. We see that passion in a different way when he confronts Peter on the seashore after his resurrection. Peter, the one who boasted of his faithfulness. And Peter, the one who betrayed him three times. And we see Jesus, this man of passion and compassion, three times restore Peter with the gentle words, Do you love me? Then feed my sheep. When you're going through the tough times, when you feel like it is no use, when you feel like nobody else cares, or if you ever get to the point that you feel like no one else can understand what you are going through, you haven't lost your doctrine, what you've lost is your passion. And so what is the answer? Look to Jesus. All of his disciples deserted, deserted him at the most crucial of all hours. He was alone, and no one could help him. Do you remember what the writer to the Hebrews said? In chapter 12, verse 1, he said, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Remember this. You are not alone. First and foremost, you have Jesus Christ. 
But secondly, and, and, and I don't want to minimize this at all, you have brothers all over the United States and Canada that have gone through the same thing that you are going through. And they have endured. For in the worst of times, you might just see the best of times around the corner. Look what Nehemiah did. Nehemiah wept, but he didn't remain seated. He put his priorities in order, and he first appealed to God with prayer and fasting. Brothers, we must, we must be men, must be women of prayer and fasting. Humbling ourselves before God. Recognizing that it's not our own abilities. It's not our ministries. But we are on a mission and a commission from Almighty God. And then Nehemiah, after he got up from his prayer and his fasting and his weeping, which was not just a short time. He was a man of action and he devised a plan to do something about the condition of Jerusalem. He not only built a city, rebuilt a city in under two, the walls in under two months, but he instituted reforms that lasted until the time of Christ. One of the true great reforms in the, in the Old Testament. And all the while he was under attack from both without and from within inside the community of God's people. Brothers, let me remind you that Jesus himself said that in this world you will have tribulation. Paul said, all who desire to live godly will suffer persecution. And it's not all from outside the gates either. But Jesus said, be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. There was a time when I threatened I was going to hang a sign over the entranceway to our church. Enter at your own risk. Because it seemed that whoever walked through the door, if they were fine when they came in, that didn't last long. You know, when you go through these times, when you go into the pit, you know what you need? You need Joel. Oh, I don't mean Joel in the Bible. Oh, we need him too. Uh, you need a Joel Guido. Yeah, you heard it. Joel Guido. His mother was Jewish, hence Joel. His father was Italian, hence the name Guido. I used to kid with Joel that he was conflicted whenever he wanted to buy something, being half Jewish and half Italian. He didn't know whether he should bargain or make him an offer he couldn't refuse. <laughs> Joel was a heroin addict. And through the needle contracted AIDS. First night I met Joel, he was in the hospital and his wife had died. And his sister was a member of my congregation, and I was called to the scene. And in God's providence, the detectives handling the case were men that had worked for me in my years as a homicide sergeant. But, of course, they elected me to go and make the notification to Joel. Joel didn't take it well. He was in a hospital bed. He had 
IVs and needles hanging all out of him. And when we told him that his wife had died, he began to pull out the needles and the IVs. And I physically had to strain him. And he and I literally had a physical fight <laughs> while we waited for security to come. That was my introduction to Joel Guido. At the funeral for his wife, he did apologize. He recognized that I was not his enemy. And then for the next several months, Joel became the biggest pain in the neck I think I've ever had in my ministry. Came for Bible studies and just disrupted them and everything else. And one afternoon, Sunday afternoon, I got a call, and it was Joel. And he said, Pastor, can you just come over to the house, the apartment? I said, sure. He said, just come in. The door's open. He says, uh, I'm not going to answer the door. So I came over, and I started calling around, and I found Joel in the closet covering himself with four or five different winter coats and huddled and almost in a fetal position. So I said, Joel, what's, what's the problem? He says, I believe God is going to strike me dead. So I backed up a few paces. I said, come out of the closet, Joel. She came out of the closet, and that Sunday afternoon we sat, and I opened the scriptures, and Joel repented of his sin. I'll give you the shortened version. Over the next several years, Joel worked out his sanctification with fear and trembling and ultimately became a deacon in my church and my best friend. The verses that meant the most to Joel were Philippians 1, 21 to 24. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which way to choose. But I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better, yet to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. When we were examining these verses, we, we focused on that last part of verse 23 with the desire to be with Christ, for that is very much better. And you guys are better Greek scholars than I am, but I understand it's like a double superlative, so we always used to translate it, it's much more betterer. Bad English, but good Greek. And Joel focused on that. A few years later, Joel, typical Joel fashion, was helping one of the congregants move some furniture, and he took his back out, was sent to the hospital, contracted pneumonia, and there the doctor said the AIDS had just had too much of an effect. He couldn't fight off the infection, and he was dying. Once again, I was elected to tell him. I walked into his room, I looked him in the eye, and I said, Joel, I've never lied to you. I've always given it to you straight. You're not coming out of the hospital. You're going home to be with the Lord. He looked up, he got a funny smile on his face, and he said, it's much more better. That's not the end of the story. When the people of the congregation heard that Joel was dying, 
whole congregation came to the hospital. They had to give us a special room to put everybody in. And they allowed everybody two by two to go into the room. And there Joel ministered to everybody. (laughs) Every young person, drug addicts, those struggling with alcohol, rebellious teens. Joel gave them the gospel one last time. And then he went home to be with the Lord. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. You need a Joel. I can tell you that if I never am privileged to lead another person to Christ, my ministry has been worth it if I spend my whole life and just see that Joel is in heaven. Let me ask you. Wouldn't it be worth sacrificing your whole life, your entire time in the gospel ministry, if you helped one soul to come to Christ? Don't lose your passion. The angels in heaven rejoice when one soul comes. Don't lose your passion. Don't be afraid to weep over the condition of the church of Jesus Christ. Then find yourself a Joel. Gentlemen, we will go through the best of times and the worst of times. But we know that one day the worst of times will disappear. And it will only be the best of times. Let's pray. Father, we bow before you. How grateful and thankful we are for Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior, and our King, who is also our friend and our brother. Father, I would pray this morning for anyone here who is going through a tough time, who is discouraged, that, Father, that even through the ministry of the speakers and the fellowship this week, that they would rekindle the passion that you gave them when you called them to ministry. Thank you, Father, for the privilege you've given to us to be ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We love you. We praise you. We adore you. And we worship you. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.